This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode has been carefully curated from the Top of Mind archive, and there's a lot to choose from. We've been going in-depth with guests on the air every weekday since 2015, searching for new perspectives and ideas. I hope what you hear today makes you think about your world a little differently and sparks satisfying new conversations with the people in your life. Let's dive in. I have a dream, Reverend King said, that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. In every corner of American society, that has been the centuries-long quest for people of color. In Bill Lester's case, it was his skill behind the wheel of a race car he wanted to be appreciated for. But NASCAR has always been a sport based in the American South, dominated by white men and white fans. When Bill Lester clawed his way to NASCAR's Elite Series in the early 2000s, he was the first black driver to get there in 20 years. Years later, there is still only one black driver at NASCAR's top level, Bubba Wallace. But things are changing in the sport at a pace that honestly is head spinning for a trailblazer like Bill Lester. For this special episode of Top of Mind, we are spending the entire hour in conversation with Bill Lester and his new memoir, which is called Winning in Reverse. Mr. Lester, hi. Thanks so much for taking time today. Thanks for having me, Julie. For those not too familiar with NASCAR, um, talk to me about this Confederate flag thing. Is it that big of a deal that the league would ban it at races? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the Confederate flag is a huge deterrent and uh, something that when I first saw NASCAR on television was something that just turned me off to it. I was like, wow, I mean, why are all these Confederate flags, you know, waving proudly in the breeze when they are so hurtful to such a large segment of the population? But it was, you know, NASCAR's culture, its history. It was what it was effectively built upon you know, moonshiners in the deep south, that sort of thing. That's kind of what led to NASCAR. And so having these Confederate flags was something that was for, I guess, a lot of their fans, something to be proud of. But uh, for most, you know, people of color, especially African-Americans in particular, um, it's it's just a sign of oppression and um, angst and disappointment and sadness. To ban the Confederate flag, was a huge statement. It was something that I did not believe I would see in my lifetime, quite frankly. Tell me a little bit about what your experience was like encountering the Confederate flag, but also you write in the book about, you know, hearing people use the N-word with frequency um, and you, you were booed by fans at, at, at a racetrack in Martinsville, Virginia. So you experienced racism. Did you feel like you could bring that up? You could ask for change in the early 2000s? Well, you know, when I was racing in the early 2000s, like you mentioned, um, NASCAR in particular was not ready for change. They were very comfortable in their traditional tried and true ways. And uh, anything that opposed it wasn't something they were receptive to. So I did my very best when I was on the circuit to talk about, you know, some of these things that I saw and some of these things that I experienced to the media. You know, a lot of journalists and, and media outlets would come to me for interviews and ask me about my experiences as being a you know, black driver in NASCAR's, uh, you know, series. And I would tell them, quite frankly, you know, I love the competition. You know, it was second to none. I, I don't know how to explain it other than it was hectic. It was extremely competitive. It was no holds barred. It was, you know, for a race car driver, you know, the, 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 the most you can ask for. But then on the flip side, I would express to some of these journalists just how uncomfortable I was in some of the environments that I was in. And I would talk about just how hard it was to cope with the Confederate flags being there, you know, at these venues. And, uh, you know, they would jot it down. They would write their stories. You know, I would tell them that I've heard, you know, the N-word being used. And I've heard, you know, it mumbled under people's breath. Nobody's actually ever called me one to my face because there probably would have been a different outcome. It was, uh, you know, where a situation where I just tried not to focus on it. You know, I tried to concentrate on the task at hand, which was to be the best race car driver I could be and beat these guys that were trying to beat me. And there was no reception from NASCAR, just like there really wasn't much of a reception across the country 
in terms of some of the issues that, you know, black folks were dealing with and continue to deal with. So well, I attempted to do everything I could within my sphere. It was on a very, you know, I would say unsuccessful basis mm-hmm. because ears were not open. You know, um, there was no empathy. There was no concern. You mentioned um, how, how a lot of what you were trying to do was just uh, focus on being the best driver you could be. There's a quote from Bubba Wallace on the cover of your book that reflects just how difficult it could be <laughs> for a driver in your sport to, um, you know, to be appreciated for your skill. So this is what um, Bubba Wallace says this on the cover of, of your book. Being black in NASCAR, you have to have the talent. You also have to have thick skin. You're already looked at with many more eyes, expecting immediate success, no matter the equipment or circumstances you're in. As soon as you don't perform, your opportunity is immediately labeled as a handout based solely off the color of your skin. When your time comes, you have to be twice as ready to seize and capitalize on the task in front of you. Bill Lester, would you tell us about a time in your career where you had to be twice as ready to seize the opportunity because you knew you were only going to get it once? They, they, they probably weren't going to cut a guy with your skin color that much slack. Yeah, you know, there are lots of examples of that situation. Um, I do not come from wealth and what I consider or call a checkbook these days, which is what most drivers show up with when they go racing. I had to do it on talent. And so I remember very distinctly that when Dodge was good enough and had the foresight to create a diversity program where just the talent of the driver would have been, was the focus of who determined who got the opportunity to race the truck at that time. This was in the truck series. Um, I was ready, you know, I was twice as ready and I had to, basically shine above everybody else to get this opportunity. And so uh, fortunately I was able to race with Dodge in this program, but even before that, and, you know, sports car racing, road racing, whenever I showed up, you know, I had to be that much better to hopefully get the opportunity to drive the car based on talent than the guys next to me that also had a checkbook, you know, they had the money and the financial wherewithal, such that if they weren't as good, quite as good behind the wheel, they could still buy their way into the opportunity. A really important part of your story, in fact, is just how unconventional your path was into racing. You were in your 40s when you reached NASCAR's elite level. By comparison, a lot of the um, the up-and-comers today are in their 20s, <laughs> barely. And when you became um, part of that level at NASCAR, you had only just a few years earlier been working full-time as an engineer at HP, Hewlett-Packard. You'd spent 15 years in computer engineering, um, which is part of why your memoir is called Winning in Reverse, right? That you basically did the whole thing backwards. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, um, when I came on the NASCAR scene, I first started out in the truck series, which is kind of like double A to the cup series, which is the top level of, you know, top step of the ladder. And so when I first came in NASCAR, I came in at 40 years of age after leaving Hewlett Packard at 37 with a 15 year career there, like you stated, initially as a software development engineer, and then as a research and development project manager. So I was successful by everybody's definition, but my own, I define success as happiness and I wasn't happy doing what I was doing from eight to five in a corporate office. I really wanted to race, but I had to take that route to get to a point where I could afford to start racing on my own. And I started amateur racing, but to show up in NASCAR at 40 years of age, not having any experience on dirt or turning just, or just turning left, which means running around in a circle. I started out road racing sports cars in Northern California, which means three and a half to four mile road courses, turning right and turning left, not racing around on a bull ring or a super speedway, you know, dropping it into fourth gear and trying to stay off a concrete wall. You know, I was on natural terrain road courses. So I had no experience in a stock car environment, but I showed up. Um, I was good enough to get this opportunity to race for a factory team with Dodge. And then at 45 is when I made my cup debut. That's when I raced with the top names in the sport, like, you know, Jeff Gordon and Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Tony Stewart, 
you know, those guys. And so that is unheard of. Most kids, like you stated, start out in their single digit years with a go-kart or a quarter midget or something of that nature. And they climb the ranks. And by the time they're in their late teens or early 20s, they're racing professionally. I didn't become a full-time professional racer until two decades after that. But the funny thing is that my last competitive racing was go-karting at age 50 when I represented Team USA in international karting competition in Portimao, Portugal. I was so proud of that. But the funny thing is that my last comp- competition was what I should have started out racing. Yeah. <laughs> but you did. Uh, it's not as though you you only just discovered your love for racing and going fast as an adult. Tell us about some of your childhood escapades with speed. <laughs> well, yeah, um, my father is, I would say, probably the one responsible for my becoming a professional race car driver because he exposed me to the sport when I was just shy of eight years old. He took me to a race in Monterey, a track called Laguna Seca in Northern California. And he told, took me there because he knew that I had a love of race cars, you know, just by w- watching them on t- TV or seeing them in the neighborhood, you know, sports cars and, you know, muscle cars and things of that nature. So he took me to a race and that really set the hook. You know, I saw these cars whizzing by me at 160 miles an hour when we were there at the event and it was intoxicating for me. And I knew right then and there that this is something I wanted to do. But as I looked left and I looked right, I didn't see anybody who looked like me, you know, enjoying the event, let alone the ones behind the wheel as the race car driver. So I didn't know if there's anything I could aspire to, but that impression that that, that race made on me was, you know, indelible. It was something that just, I, I knew that was going to be my springboard to what it is I wanted to do later in life. And so, you know, as I started, you know, growing up, um, I watched more and more racing on television. I read more and more about racing in magazines. And then I got my driver's license and it was game on. You know, <laughs> I did all sorts of things that I don't condone, all sorts of things that were not legal. But I had to find out whether or not I love driving fast, whether or not I had a skill at driving, you know, fast. And could I do things with cars that other guys couldn't do. And I learned really quickly that I was pretty good behind the wheel. And, um, you know, when you turn, talk about escapades, you know, you know, burnouts, you know, from stop signs and stop lights and, you know, street racing and, you know, all sorts of things that um, I shouldn't do. And I can't say I was proud of doing, but it's what I had to do because I wasn't given the opportunity to, to um, experience it in a controlled environment. My parents were not going to send me to a racing school. I didn't obviously, as a teenager, have the financial wherewithal to go to a racing school. And so I just goofed around on the streets and did all sorts of things that um, fortunately I didn't have to suffer, you know, too bad of consequences of. I didn't harm anybody. Your poor parents, though, must have been a, you know, a parent's worst nightmare to have a teenager with a driver's license who also (laughs) has a need for speed. Yeah. You know, I'm sure they had their concerns, but (laughs) I don't know, I guess to my credit or maybe they turned a blind eye. um, They just did not realize that I was going out and doing these things on the street until I had one huge misfortune and I wrecked my mother's BMW and I brought it home damaged. And it was a hard lesson for me to learn because the trust that I had built with her, you know, I had shattered it, the despair and, you know, um, just disappointment on her face and how things were between us for a while, just really hurt me. And so, you know, I mean, yeah, I learned a hard lesson there. I was out there street racing and lost control of my mother's car and beached it on some rocks and, you know, damaged, put a hole in the oil pan and damaged the suspension and some of the undercarriage and everything that I had saved up for to buy my first car, I wound up putting into repairing my mother's car. So not only did I lose her trust and learn a bad lesson, um, you know, I wound up not getting the car that I had worked so hard to try to buy. Oh, there's a beautiful moment, though, um, a, a few years later, once you've broken into the kind of amateur club racing level um, in uh, there in Northern California, where you win a race <laughs> and your mom jumps in the car with you for the victory lap. Tell us about that race and what that moment was like for you. Yeah, this was my first year of competition in Sports Car Club of America or SCCA Road Racing, and it was at Sears Point Raceway in Sonoma. 
And I won my first race. And that first race happened to be on Mother's Day. And my mom was there, just like my, you know, my whole family, my father and my sister as well. But as is in tradition for after winning a race, you get the checkered flag and you get to take a victory lap. And there was no question as to who was going to ride along with me as a passenger on my victory lap. That was my mother. She just pushed her way right up to the front, jumped into the passenger seat. And we take this slow ride around the track with her holding the checkered flag out the window as we wave to, you know, the corner workers and, and the crowd that was there. And we were like babies crying the whole time because I was so elated and so just emotionally overcome, as was she. She was so excited for me because, you know, I had won. She knew that it's something I wanted to do. She knew I was able to succeed in doing it. And so it was gratifying to her just as much as it was to me. Because <laughs> until that time, I hadn't won a race and I didn't know if I was going to be that good. But there, it proved that uh, not only did I have the love for the sport, I had the talent for it. I love also that you write that she, the whole time you were going around on that, you called it a slow victory lap. And she's like, slow down, slow down. <laughs> we're going too fast. <laughs> she apparently didn't have the same hunger for speed. Yeah, you know, it's a whole different perspective for somebody who hadn't been behind the wheel of a car um, racing it on the sidelines like she was. And somebody like me, who had just complete, completed, you know, the race, having, you know, been running at speeds of up to about 140 miles an hour. And then coming down to pick her up, she gets in and then take that slow ride around. Listen, it felt slow to me because I you know, was just done doing triple digit speeds. But she hadn't been in the car you know, at that time. And I'm locked into my seat with a six-point harness. You know, I have all the uh, safety equipment on that's required to race. And she's hanging on to a roll bar with one hand while holding the checkered flag out of the window with the other. She has no racing seat. My race car only has one seat in it, and it's for me. So here she is basically straddling the roll cage, hanging onto it with one hand while the flag is hanging out the window with the other. And I must have only probably been doing maybe 30, 40 miles an hour, but to her, it probably felt like 150. <laughs> oh, it's just such a beautiful moment and really um, was an important turning point in your career, Bill Lester. At the, at the time, though, you, um, you're you still working as a computer science software engineer at HP. Like, that was your career. You graduated from Berkeley. So there's, there's still some time yet before you're able to transition to full-time professional racing. And that's what we'll talk about next. We first have to take a really quick break here on Top of Mind. Speaking with Bill Lester, former NASCAR driver and author of a new memoir. It's called Winning in Reverse, Defying Odds and Achieving Dreams, The Bill Lester Story. I'm Julie Rose. We'll be right back. It's great to have you with us for Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose with a conversation with a trailblazer in race car driving. Bill Lester is one of the very few, only a handful of black men who have raced at the elite cup level of NASCAR. And he has written a book about his very unconventional journey to NASCAR. It's called Winning in Reverse. Defying Odds and Achieving Dreams, the Bill Lester story. Um, Bill Lester, you you write in, in the book that you're, it's, it was from your father that you learned how to be the only black person in a place. For sure. No, my father is definitely my role model. He is so much more accomplished, I feel, than I am. He has a PhD in theoretical chemistry from the University of Chicago, and he started working after he got his degree for IBM in San Jose. That's the reason we lived in Northern California. And he was one of the, the few black men in the room in terms of this being the 60s and him being in a you know technological environment such as theoretical chemistry. What he deals with or dealt with, he's retired now, was something called quantum Monte Carlo which is the study of the collisions between atoms and molecules using computers to predict their results. So he's a heavyweight. He does not speak as far as his um, advocation is concerned. In terms of the English language, it's more like in terms of mathematics. Hmm. Most of <laughs> all of his characters are Greek symbols and numbers. 
So my father is a uh, world-renowned, you know, was a world-renowned scientist. And, you know, he would sometimes take me on the weekends to the campus at IBM. He was always the only black person around. There were lots of, you know, fellow white scientists and such, but he was basically uh, on an island. And I took note of that. I, I recognized that. I noticed that. And, you know, it was something that I, I assume prepared me for the fact that when I got into, you know, the tech industry much later than him, but still things really hadn't changed all that much. You know, I often recall many meetings and, and many situations where I was the only, you know, person of color in the room. You know, most even today of the careers that young black folks see as far as success is concerned, are the sports industry, you know, stick and ball sports, or the music and entertainment industry, you know, being a singer or a rapper or what have you, you know, those doctors, those lawyers, those scientists, you know, um, those marketing and business people. It's, you know, it's really a huge disparity in terms of, you know, blacks being able to infiltrate some of these occupations because they're not exposed to it. There's a very famous saying that goes, what they see is what they'll be. And when my father, like I said before, exposed me to racing, that wound up being something that I saw and I wound up being. And you were, so, and which <laughs> meant you were used to being the only black person around. I really was. And it was even before NASCAR because I started road racing sports cars before that. And, you know, even in the amateur leagues or amateur level when I was in my 20s and then did a handful of professional races in my 30s and such. I was still typically the only black driver out there. And, you know, oftentimes when I, you know, purveyed and purviewed the stands or, you know, the spectators, there weren't many of us out there watching either in sports cars or in NASCAR specifically. So, you know, I was used to not <laughs> having a, a lot of folks that I could identify with readily. It seemed to very much be like what I had heard NASCAR being called at one point, which was the NAS. The, the last bastion of white supremacy. I'd heard that term being used. And I was like, wow, it was actually fairly fitting because, you know, it was something that um, people of color just were having a very difficult time um, infiltrating or being a part of, you know, enjoying and participating in. Very difficult. And when I came to NASCAR, again, you know, I, I was really not embraced. <laughs> um, there were a lot of... Uh, situations that were made to be less than comfortable for me. And, you know, I just chalked it up to, well, that's their culture. I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to race cars. Bill Lester, how did it happen? Uh, how, how did you go from, you know, a hobby racing on an amateur level after hours and on weekends while working a full-time job at Hewlett Packard to leaving that job behind and going full time and becoming a professional in NASCAR, what what was the what was the moment of transition like? Well, you know, it was when I got married in the early nineties, um, nineteen ninety four to be exact, that I married my wife Cheryl, and she knew from day one that I wanted to be a race car driver, and without her love and support, I would have never gotten to the professional level, because what happened at one point when I was working at Hewlett Packard and again, you know, just miserable because I wasn't doing what I really wanted to do. She said, listen, hon, you're not getting any younger or any easier to live with. You either need to try to make this dream come true or realize that you put your all into it and it wasn't meant to be for you. But for you to do that, to put your all into it means that you have to put all of your time, attention, effort, dedication to making this dream a reality. I could not live a dual life, one by which I was working a corporate job on the weekdays and then trying to hustle for sponsorship and racing opportunities or what have you on the weekends. I had to completely um, devote myself to the pursuit. So with her blessing and encouragement, I took a leave of absence from Hewlett Packard to see if I could gain traction, and move from an amateur racer to a full-time professional. And so within those six months, I started gaining some great traction. And, you know, people whose um, 
numbers I had and who I had relationships with. I built, you know, friendships and I, I started really pounding on them to see, you know, what doors they could you know, help me open and what I could open for myself. You used the word hustle a moment ago. That was something that really struck me in the story is how much of being a professional race car driver is not about driving. You don't spend your time the whole time behind the wheel and then just sort of magically move up the ranks based on your skill. There's so much networking and negotiating and deal making and fundraising that has to go on. No, you're absolutely right, Julie. I consider professional racing to be like a lot of other professional sports where it's politics first, business second, and sport third. And what I mean by that, in terms of the politics, to be a professional race car driver, unless you are just independently wealthy and don't have to rely on anybody else's support, the politics of the sport are being in the room. You have to be in the room so that you have an opportunity to present yourself to create the connections and the networking opportunities that might get you through the door. Once you have done that comes the business aspect of the sport, which is, okay, you've been fortunate enough to get through the door with a sponsorship proposal and this company's considering you or what have you. Somebody is ready to assist you to get to that step of professional racing. So the business end of it is justifying why this person or corporation or entity, whatever, is going to spend six or seven figures, as much as eight figures, on sponsoring you? Why would they do that? What is the business justification? How do they get their ROI? Why would they do sponsorship of racing as opposed to pro beach volleyball or extreme skiing or stick and ball sports, any other thing? Why motorsports? And why a black driver in motorsports, right? Did, 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 how, did, how did your race affect your ability to get the kind of sponsorship that could give you a sustainable chance at success? Yeah, you would think that with the uniqueness I bring as a you know black driver that and, and an accomplished one, that companies would be banging down the door to get to me, to stand behind me or to stand with me and to support me financially to go racing. But- what I've come to find out is that companies are very much risk averse. They're not willing to stick their head out typically to try something new. They usually go with the tried and true. They usually go with, with, with what's worked in the past because if this corporate executive takes this chance and something might possibly go wrong or they might have to catch heck from the, you know, the board of directors or somebody go sideways as a customer because they don't like the fact that they're going to support a black driver, well, their head could possibly be on the chopping block. What I've come to find out from corporate America, especially those in decision-making positions, they are typically fairly risk-averse. At least they were back in the mid-2000s. I think the climate is changing a little bit now, slowly. But back when I was getting, you know, calling, making these calls in the mid-2000s, there was no huge reception. And I was surprised by that because I thought that not only could I appeal to the mainstream consumer, but I could also appeal to the consumer of color. But it was amazing to me that um, these companies did not return my calls. They did not follow through on the meetings. And so the business aspect of it was very, very disheartening to me. It was very difficult. I was always hustling. I was always making these phone calls. I was always trying to find out who is in the position that might be able to help me at this company versus another company. And at the end of the day, if you're fortunate enough to gain that support, you actually get to put your helmet on and do what it is that you wanted to do. Why do you need the money, though, in order to, to win races? Couldn't you just get in the car and prove yourself on the track? <laughs> yeah. So money buys speed. And way teams are set up now is that they are not responsible for bringing sponsorship to run a racing program. Racing teams provide the infrastructure. They have the race shop. They have the transporters. They have the crew and the personnel. They have the equipment. And they actually have the race cars. But the operational budget, they do not have. And they rely upon the driver to bring that. And a sponsorship number for a cup-level NASCAR team is about an 18 to $22 million proposition a year. People just are floored by just how much it costs to go racing in NASCAR at the top level. But when you think about all of the 
equipment, all of the personnel, all of the travel, all of the technology, as well as all the consumables that a race car eats, it adds up very quickly. People don't realize typically that a set of tires is about a $2,200 proposition per set. And a race weekend um, at that time required 10 to 12 sets of tires at $2,200 per set. That then <laughs> you talk about the engines at $125,000, $150,000 per engine. You talk about the fact that not only do you have a primary car that you've entered into the event for that weekend, you have a backup car that's in the hauler or the trailer ready to go and um, get on the track if you crash the primary car. And so while you may be the most talented you know, driver in the world, if you also don't bring any financing these days, you're not going to get the ride. Now, back then when I was driving, you could basically gain a long, you know, um, per hand by having a name. So some of those drivers I mentioned before, like, you know, Dale Earnhardt Jr. or Tony Stewart, a lot of those guys were able to just do it on talent, but then were relied upon to also bring financial support. Now you almost come with your checkbook first and your helmet second. Mm. And as you mentioned, Bill Lester, the color of your skin hampered your ability to pad that checkbook so that you could get the resources to win the races. And as hard as you had it in the early 2000s, uh, Wendell Scott, the first black man to reach the elite levels of NASCAR, it was a whole different ballgame for him. And I know that he has been an important, um, an important inspiration for you. So will you tell us just a little bit about him, about Wendell Scott? Sure, I will. But let me first correct you just slightly. The fact is that Wendell Scott is the first black man to win in NASCAR. There were a couple of drivers before him, but, um, you know, they're almost like footnotes because they didn't win. When Wendell Scott won, you know, in the early 60s and didn't receive, you know, the, uh, the check or the trophy because of the concern that the promoter, the track owner felt would uh, would follow, acknowledging it as the winner. Um, it, it's it's amazing because the 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 fact wait, is wait, that you're saying sorry, Bill Lester. You're saying that he won, but they wouldn't give him the winning purse or the trophy because they were afraid that that would make people angry, make the fans angry. That's exactly right. He didn't, you know, kiss the trophy queen or anything of that nature. This was in the 1960s. Is that right? Yes. Okay. This is the early 60s. I think it was 1963. And so, yes, um, there were three black drivers that came before Wendell Scott that raced at the top level, but they were like one and done racers. But Wendell Scott ran for a long period of time. He raced until um, the 70s. And so he really had it difficult. I can't even imagine what it must have been like for him. I've heard the stories, but, you know, this is when I was a toddler <laughs> when he when he won, basically. So I don't. I, I can't say that I watched his career, but from everything I know, um, he was in a danger situation every moment, you know, and he could not afford to put the best equipment, you know, underneath his car or in his car like his opponents, his competitors could. So he scrapped and he scraped. It, it was crazy for him to do what he did and to finally win is amazing. You know, there's a movie called Grease Lightning out there with Richard Pryor and Pam Greer as the lead roles, Richard playing, um, Richard Pryor playing Wendell's character and Pam Greer playing Mary, Wendell's wife. And it's a great movie, but it gives a great perspective of what it was like to be in the deep South in the sixties in completely um, tre treacherous water, is I guess the best way to put it. But when I won in Vir at Virginia International Raceway in 2011 to win a sports car road race that was sanctioned by a NASCAR in the backyard of Wendell Scott. Um, Wendell's from, from Danville, um, Virginia. And where I was in Alton, Virginia, where Virginia International Raceway are, are very close. So for me to win as a black man in Virginia, um, a rock's throw away from Wendell was huge for me. It meant so much and added to the fact that earlier in that same decade, I got to meet the Scott family, um, needless to say, Sands Wendell. Wendell passed before that. was a huge honor as well. I, I spent time with Wendell Jr., um, 
who is his son, Frank, who is his son, Sybil and Deborah, who are his daughters, and, and Mary, the late Mary Scott. I got to spend time with her as well. And um, to go to the Scott family home, to see the memorabilia around the house, to see the pictures, and then to go across the street to the barn, which was Wendell's race shop, and actually get to sit in one of Wendell's cars was an experience I'll never forget. I couldn't believe that, you know, Scott's sons let me sit in Wendell's car. And they did so. They pulled off a, uh, a car cover and they said, would you like to sit in it? And I said, are you serious? And they said, yeah. And so uh, Wendell and Frank and I, we, we pulled it off and I sat in and sat in it very gingerly, not to disturb anything. They didn't, you know, give me the opportunity to start it up and I wouldn't have wanted to anyway, but just to sit in the car that as far as I'm concerned is a, um, a gem. It's, it's like a museum piece. It is like something that should be honored. And to see what it was like to race a car like that with hardly any safety equipment in it was amazing. You know, the seat belts were just lap belts. The, the roll bar was really nothing that would stop anything or protect you from anything. Um, the steering wheel was, you know, razor thin. It was like the, <laughs> felt like the diameter of a pencil mm. as opposed to these thick steering wheels we have now. Um, it was really, a, you had to be a man. You, you were a man's man to race back then. And one of the other things that made it just so difficult is that there was no climate control at all. There was nothing called a helmet blower, which is what drivers have now, or a cool suit. The helmet blower blows cool air into your helmet. And when I say cool, I mean 10% cooler than ambient. So if it's a 90 degree day, it blows 80 degree air into your helmet. But if your body, you know, if your head feels it's cool, and your body thinks it's cool as well. There was no helmet blower. There was no cool suit, which is like a vest that um, circulates cold water across your chest. These guys were just exposed to 95 degree temperatures with 100% humidity for four hours on end, so sweating like crazy. So it gave me a completely um, new appreciation for driving a stock car in the 60s. You know, we, we're basically driving, you know, luxury cars compared to what Wendell Scott was driving. <laughs> Speaking with Bill Lester, who is a former NASCAR driver himself, and he's got a new book. It's a memoir called Winning in Reverse, Defying Odds and Achieving Dreams, The Bill Lester Story. There's more to discuss here on Top of Mind, but you have to take a quick break. Stay with us. I'm Julie Rose. It's great to have you with us today for Top of Mind. And great to have with us Bill Lester. He's a former NASCAR driver. His new book is Winning in Reverse. It's a memoir of defying odds and achieving dreams. He became a NASCAR driver at the unlikely age of 40. And uh, as one of the very few black drivers ever to reach the top levels of NASCAR, you mention, Bill Lester, that one of the great uh, privileges of your life, one of the highlights of your life, was being the first African-American driver featured on the front of a Honey Nut Cheerios box. <laughs> Tell us about that. Why was that so meaningful to you? Yeah, what a surprise that was. Um, General Mills, through their regular Cheerios brand, had been a sponsor of NASCAR for a few years. And one day they approached me at a race and they said, uh, how about having your own Honey Nut Cheerios cereal box? And I said, sign me up. I'm all about it. I was so elated. I couldn't believe it. When I think of, you know, Cheerios and Honey Nut Cheerios, and I think of those that would be on a cereal box, you know, you think of Wheaties and, you know, another General Mills product. You think of, you know, just world-renowned stick and ball athletes and, them to think that I was worthy of a cereal box just was a huge shot in the arm for me. I, I just was over the moon about it. I was elated and um, just very, very grateful that they thought that I would be a good representative for the brand. So it meant a tremendous amount to me. Actually was blown away one day when I walked into a uh, grocery store and I was walking down the cereal aisle just to see if my box was on the shelf. And there was this elderly black woman who had one of my cereal boxes, one of my Honey Nut Cheerio cereal boxes in her hand. And she was looking at it. And so I just kind of gingerly walked up to her 
And she probably could feel my presence because she turned her attention to me and looked at me. And then I kind of smiled. And then she quickly looked right back at the box. Then she looked at me again and she looked back at the box and she said, you're him. And I said, yeah, I am. <laughs> It'd be my honor to autograph a box for you. Would you like that? And she said, oh yeah, definitely. And as every NASCAR driver has on hand, a Sharpie. So I had a Sharpie and I autographed a box for her. She put it in a grocery cart and uh, that was a really cool experience. I think she was just blown away by the fact that he actually met somebody who was actually on a cereal box. Do you think it could possibly have made any difference for your career if at the age of 10, there had been a black NASCAR driver on the cover of the cereal box that you were eating out of on your table? Yeah, I think that probably would have made a huge impression on me for sure. It would have been somebody else who looked like me, who I could aspire to be like, you know, I didn't have any of those images. You know, when I, uh, you know, started out in racing, like I told you before, my father took me to a race. I didn't see anybody who looked like me. And, you know, pretty much all the races I watched on television, you know, growing up as a boy and, and, and then into my, you know, teens, I really didn't see anybody who looked like me. And so, yeah, you know, I mean, I saw a lot of, you know, uh, drivers, but mostly they were, for the most part, all white, you know, but um, my hero in racing is a Brazilian driver, the late Ayrton Senna, who raced in Formula One. A Brazilian again, and um, he had some color to him, and he had some ethnicity to him, and he was magic behind the wheel. And I identified with Ayrton Senna, you know, and so I did have a figure. It just wasn't a black one. Things are changing in NASCAR. We started off talking about how NASCAR, it sounds like to your surprise and to the surprise of a lot of people, took the step of banning the Confederate flag at its events and its venues. Um, Also, very vocal in support of Bubba Wallace, the, the only black driver currently driving at NASCAR's elite cup level. And over the summer, a noose was found, a rope noose hanging um, as as the pull for uh, the garage that he was assigned to at one of the races, the Talladega race, and um, an FBI investigation looked into it, found that it hadn't been targeted specifically at Bubba Wallace because of his skin. It wasn't a race. It wasn't a hate crime per se. But NASCAR and Wallace's colleagues, other racers, rallied around him and, you know, leaned in to the opportunity to take a stance against racism. What did you think of that, watching that play out? Well, I was in awe, you know, for two reasons. One earlier, when I mentioned that NASCAR banned the Confederate flag, I just, you know, if you were to ask me, Bill, do you think you'll see that in your lifetime? I would, I would have bet against it. You know, I didn't think that would ever happen. And then, you know, during that event at Talladega that you mentioned, where the, basically the whole garage, you know, drivers and crew members, pushed Bubba's car through the front of the line was just monumental. It just showed the camaraderie that the NASCAR community has, you know, in the garage area. I'm not talking about all the fans now. I'm talking about in the garage area that they have and how they were making a statement that they would not stand for racism. It was a huge moment. And, uh, you know, something that brought Bubba to tears, um, something that left quite an impression on me. And, you know, was the start of, I believe, just a groundswell in NASCAR to do the right thing and make the sport, you know, ensure the sport is inclusive and comfortable to everybody. You know, that was really what the mission is for NASCAR is to make it comfortable and inclusive for everyone. You know, it was, like I said before, considered and one of the last bastions of white supremacy and, you know, outsiders were, were not welcomed. But now NASCAR is doing a, a number of things to try to make it so that it is a fan friendly environment. What will it take in order for more black drivers, drivers of color in general, to have the opportunity to get the sponsorship, get the time behind the wheel, get the access that can get them to those elite levels, though? Yeah, isn't that the, you know, $100 million question? You know, it starts with exposure. You have to be exposed to the sport at a young age. To become a professional race car driver nowadays, you have to start in your single digit years. And then it goes to opportunity. It's having an equal and level playing field. 
In other words, we have the same access to capital as people of color, as the white majority does. In other words, we can get to those decision makers and get the same sort of consideration, proper consideration that the mainstream gets. That has not been the case traditionally or historically. And it's, you know, like I said, the, the reception to change has been very, you know, um, hard fought. So it starts with exposure, then it goes to opportunity. That's what it's gonna take to change it. But, you know, as far as NASCAR is concerned, they really gotta roll out the red carpet as far as I'm concerned to make the sport um, more comfortable, make it more welcoming, make it warm, go into the communities, you know, uh, um, that they have traditionally not aspired to. And, you know, do the promotion and the marketing that's necessary to bring out a different segment, a greater segment than what they've appealed to and aspired to before. Those are the sorts of things that need to occur. They can't just, you know, um, conduct the race and expect that black people in particular are going to come out there because the, the perceptions are still there. They're not going to, they're not going to change overnight. I think Bubba's done a great job with the platform that he's been given, you know, basically um, off the, the heels of, you know, George Floyd and, um, you know, Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor to have the ears that are now open and hearts that are now open and sensitivity that was not forthcoming before to hear what's going on and to see what's going on across this country. And as a result of that, change is, is, is in the air. But what, you know, NASCAR has to do and the racing world and environment has to do is reach out beyond their comfort zone. They need to extend a much deeper, much broader olive branch to get more communities involved in racing. And it's just not NASCAR's problem. It's IndyCar's problem. It's sports car road racing's problem. You know, I think drag racing's done a much better job than these other disciplines I've just mentioned. But drag racing could even stand to have more, you know, um, participation across the board. You know, it's easier for drag racing to appeal to more people of color because drag racing is an extension of street racing. In other words, racing from stoplight to stoplight. That's what drag racing is. NASCAR racing is going to a purpose-built track out there in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Sports car racing is going to a purpose-built track in the middle of nowhere. Um, and same with IndyCar racing. That requires finances and resources and typically a family that's interested in going out there and exposing their kids to it so that they might want to do it. Or a kid who is supposedly like me really has an interest in racing and convinces their parents to take them. You know, otherwise it's just not going to change. So there have to be some efforts afoot, like I just mentioned, to really um, make a difference. Bill Lester, at the end of the day, you didn't get the you didn't get the wins that you hoped for, as much success as you hoped for in in your professional career in NASCAR for a lot of the reasons that we mentioned, the challenges with fundraising and access and discrimination and also just your, um, you know, your upbringing and your late entry into NASCAR. <laughs> you made a lot of sacrifices in order to give it a go. Was it worth it? Absolutely. There's no question about that. You know, I, I took advantage of every opportunity. I believe I made all the right decisions. Um, I took you know, advantage of, you know, everything that I could. Um, I, this, the reason that I believe that I won in reverse is because of eight key attributes or keys to my success, which is one, getting out of your comfort zone. You, you've got to be able to do that. You've, for anything to, for you to succeed in anything that's worth succeeding in, you, you've got to get out of your own comfort zone. You've got to not be your own worst enemy. You got to take those chances. You got to take those risks because without that, those rewards don't come. You also, secondly, have to have a passion for what it is you're trying to do. My passion couldn't let me stop. It's the racing was the only thing I thought about. I ate it. I slept it. You know, it was just who I was. The third thing was sacrifice. There's going to be a lot of sacrifice for you to get to where you need to go. You know, I, I can remember events that I couldn't, you know, participate in because I needed to be somewhere else that had to deal with racing. You know, lots of different things. You have to make decisions, but, you know, are you willing to sacrifice for what you're, you're trying to achieve? Right? The fourth thing is persistence. You know, you can't take no for an answer. 
absolutely not. I was discouraged so many times and in, in, in so many terms, like, you know, what are you doing out here? You guys don't race, you know? I could have easily taken those stares, those murmurs, you know, the N-word and all that kind of stuff and just let it defeat me. I didn't. I was persistent. I knew what I wanted to do. The next thing is discipline. It's almost like sacrifice, but discipline is almost like persistence in that you must stay disciplined to be able to achieve. The next is enthusiasm. You got to have the enthusiasm to be able to achieve your goals. You know, there's going to be some tough sledding. So sometimes you have to just find a way to bring that joy, to give you, to continue to instill that, that love, that, you know, that goal setting. You have to have the enthusiasm to keep pushing forward. And then networking. I, I mentioned that earlier about, you know, the people that I've met along the way and how important they've been in terms of supporting, you know, my dreams and my goals and not being afraid to go out and meet new people. And again, you know, find people that can help you that possibly can assist you. You know, you can't make it on your own. The networking is so important. And lastly, gratitude. You have to sometimes step back and take stock, even though sometimes things are very difficult and you don't think there's a way. Sometimes you just have to take a step back and be gracious and, and have gratitude, show gratitude for what you've accomplished, what you've been able to do. It wasn't going to be easy. You know, I knew it wasn't going to be easy, but I'm so grateful for those that took a chance on me, that believed in me, that gave me, you know, an opportunity that may not have come otherwise. Those are the things that I believe that allowed me to be successful and I wouldn't have lived my life, I wouldn't have tried to live my life any other way. Bill Lester is a former race car driver, one of only seven black drivers ever to race in NASCAR's top tier cup series. And his new memoir is Winning in Reverse, Defying Odds and Achieving Dreams, the Bill Lester story. Bill, it's been so nice speaking with you. Thank you very much for taking time today. Julie, it's been my pleasure. I enjoyed it as well. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Ciara Hewlett, Cleon Wall, and Kyle Remond produced the show. Today's episode was curated from Top of Mind's vast archive of past conversations. I hope you enjoyed hearing some of our favorites. You can find more, lots more, from Top of Mind on the free BYU Radio app. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.